0: Joshua chapter 10 is where we are. We're back in our series, Joshua, when it is time to take the hill. And uh, the book of Joshua, if you're not familiar, man, it is one of the Bible's great books about faith and courage. It's a historical record of Israel's conquest um, of Canaan, the promised land, the territory that God had promised to his people, Uh, to Abraham and his seed hundreds of years earlier. And up to the point that where we are tonight in Joshua chapter 10, up to this point uh, in the campaign, the cities of Jericho and Ai have been conquered. And then as we saw last week in chapter 9, there was a peace treaty that was made with four of the Gibeonite Cities, And it's important to remember as we dive into this tonight that uh, Canaan was not a nation. Canaan was a land area that was uh, ruled, cities that were ruled by kings. And, and so don't think of Canaan as one big nation, but these were little city nations, city, cities that were ruled by these kings and um, these territories. And tonight in chapter 10, we see a group of five Amorite kings who decide that they need to make uh, a cooperative pack to go to war with the children of Israel. And so we're gonna read about six kings, uh, six cities, six times. uh, We find in Joshua chapter 10 three words that they left no survivors. Six cities, six people groups, completely obliterated, completely destroyed, uh, completely wiped out. And I know that in today's context, look, that is troubling for us. How many of you find that troubling? Uh, it's troubling for us in, in our time, in our day and age. I mean, if, if there was a nation doing what Israel was doing back in that day, we'd all be against this. You know, we, we would all be up in arms. We would hope that our country would go to war with them and stop them from doing what they were doing. So I want to help us understand what is going on. How do we, how can this be justified? How, how can God do this? And, and one biblical scholar suggests that we keep three things in mind, and they'll be up here on the screen for you. The first one deals with Israel's, Redemptive history. This period in history, from Exodus to the incarnation, from Moses to Jesus, that it's a unique time in world history. God's will was that his people would have a national form with a land. And Canaan was the land that God had chosen. And so, as the creator of all the earth, God had the prerogative to say, This land is for the people for whom I choose, all right? So redemptive history, I'll I'll get it there for you. And the second thing that we have to keep in mind is that as God's unique people, the exploits of Israel were not her own doing. This was God's doing. God was their commander-in-chief. God gave the orders And when they followed God's orders, what happened? They had victory. When they disobeyed God's orders, what happened? Yeah, they did. They got defeated. And so what we have to conceive, as we look at chapters like this, one, we have to conceive Israel as the weapon of the Lord, as the instrument of God to accomplish his judgment on the nations, which leads us to the third part of the answer and that has to deal with the wickedness of Canaan. Canaan was not just a place for Israel. Canaan and the the conquest of Canaan was God's judgment on these nations. You know uh, Moses had warned Israel. This is Deuteronomy chapter 9. This is before they uh, went into Canaan. Moses says this, when the Lord your God drives them out before you, do not say to yourself, Don't miss this. The Lord has brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Instead, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. You are not going to take possession of their land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the lord your god will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness in order to fulfill the promise he swore to your ancestors abraham isaac and jacob And so you can go back and you can study history and you can uh, see how uh, wicked the canaanites were their practices if you go back to John, genesis chapter 13 god utterly destroyed two cities there sodom and gomorrah they were canaanite cities Why? Because, God says, because they were wicked, exceedingly, uses that word, exceedingly wicked. In Leviticus chapter 8, God says of Canaan that the land is defiled, therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof on it, and the land itself vomits out her inhabitants. And then God also warned his people in Leviticus 20, 23, you must not walk in the manners of the nations which I cast out before you, for they committed all these things, and therefore I abhorred them. Now look, take it or leave it. I mean, this is just the way the Bible tells the story. That the Canaanites were just such a wicked people that God After hundreds of years of giving them an opportunity to turn to him, to repent, almost 400 to 500 years he had given them to repent, here we find in in Joshua chapter 10, as we study these events, what we have to keep in mind is that this is a demonstration of God's faithfulness, it's a demonstration of God's holiness, and it is a demonstration of God's power. So it's not a story about how big and awesome Joshua is. It's not a story about how big and awesome Israel is. It is a story about how big God is. Several years ago, a pastor by the name of J.B. Phillips wrote a book, and uh, it was called Your God is Too Small. And he writes this in the book. He says, the trouble... Here, I put it up on the screen for you. You can read along. The trouble with many of us today is that we have not found a God big enough for our modern needs. In varying degrees, we suffer from a limited idea of God. I have to concur with that. I really believe that John Phillips is telling the truth. We have a small idea of God much smaller than God, our big God, who our big God really is. I learned a song in, uh, in church as a kid. Did you learn this song? My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. How many of you, you ever heard that song? My God is so big, right? We would go big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Sing it with me. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are his, the rivers are his, the Star show his handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Do you believe that? I mean, look. I know that we can sing the song. We sang the song as kids, and we can sing it now. We can believe that, and I think theologically, I think that we all agree. We all believe that that God is a big God. That God is able to do the impossible. We believe that, but it's another thing to live like it. To live like God is as big as the Bible says He is. So, my question for you tonight is how big is your God? How big is your God? Is He big enough for your battles today? Is He big enough for your problems today? Is he big enough for whatever crisis that you find yourself in the middle of tonight? Is your God big enough for your problem? Because if he's just big enough to do all these fancy things and win all these battles, but he's not big enough to fight your battles and to, and to help you through your crisis, then really how big is your problem? So from Joshua chapter 10 tonight, I hope, what I hope to do is to bolster your faith in God. I hope to remind us tonight that we serve a big, big God. So I'm going to give you four reminders. You can write them down. They'll be up here on the screen. Here's the first one. First reminder, God's plan always overrules the fiercest, the enemy's fiercest scheme. Say that with me. God's plan always overrules the enemy's fiercest scheme schemes so look at joshua chapter 10 verse number one we find that the king of jerusalem he hears about how joshua had captured ai he hears about the fact that it had been destroyed he hears about the the peace treaty that had been made with gibeon and this king of jerusalem he decides that he needs to call up his buddies and say hey guys we're going to have to take the fight to them. We can't wait till they come to us. We have to take the fight to them. Let's go attack the Gibeonites. They made this treaty with Israel. Let's go attack them. And so the enemy comes up with this scheme. In verse 4, we will attack Gibeon because they have made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. In verse 5, so the five Amorite kings, what do they do? They join forces. They advance all of their armies. They besiege uh, Gibeon and they fight against it. You get the picture? This is, church, this is real warfare. All right? This isn't a movie. This is the real thing. This, these are powerful armies of very violent people that were moving to destroy these cities and so uh gibeon they had made this peace treaty with israel and they they get on their cell phones they send joshua a text and they say hey remember that peace treaty you need to get up here and so joshua gathers his men and they head up there to stand against these advancing armies so the enemy has a scheme But look what the Lord says to Joshua in verse number 8. And the Lord says to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for I have handed them over to you. Not one of them will be able to stand against you. You see what's going on here? God is reassuring Joshua that the battle has already been won. That God is going to give them the victory. That, that no matter how, whatever the plans were of, the, of these advancing armies, no matter how, whatever their schematics were, whatever their war plan was, that God had a plan that overruled their plans. And so what does he say? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Hey, church, the truth is, if you signed up to follow Jesus, If if you have committed your life to Jesus Christ, if you are a disciple of Jesus, I can assure you that there's going to be opposition in your life. You're going to face it. Paul said that anyone who's going to live godly in Christ Jesus is going to suffer persecution. You can expect to experience persecution and opposition if you're going to live like a Christian today. But what we have to remember is that no matter what the enemy brings against us, we have to remember that our God's plans overrule whatever opposition the enemy brings. And we don't have to what? We don't have to be afraid. I think too many of us as Christians live in fear of the world around us. We watch the news, we get afraid. We we listen to what's going on in our world tonight, and and we get worried and and anxious and, and all wrapped up inside, like, oh, man, what's going on here? And what we have to remember is, look, God has a plan, and God's working his plan. doesn't mean that God is the one behind the evil. He's not the one behind the evil, but he is the one who's above the evil, He's the one who sits on the throne in heaven. I love Psalm 3310. You might want to go there. Do you mark your Bible? If you have a habit of marking your Bible, that's one you want to mark. It says, the Lord frustrates. Good word, isn't it? Have you ever been frustrated? The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the peoples. Can't you just see it, you know, the G7 or whatever? You know, you get all these... These powerful political people together, you know, all the kings of the world. They all get together, and, man. They make their plans and they talk about how the what they're gonna do to, 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 to swing the power, the 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 what do you call it, the the pendulum of power in the world today. Thank you. And and they're just making their plans, but God can frustrate any plan of the wicked. Any plan. He actively does that. I, I, you can go back to Genesis chapter 11 later and you can actually read about one illustration of that. This is Genesis chapter 11. You remember the Tower of Babel? Remember how, how people, they, they all spoke the same language and they're like, hey, man, let's build this tower and, and build it up into the heavens, you know? And I think the idea is that, you know, I don't know that they were so much trying to, to take over heaven or get to heaven. I think they were trying to build this worship center for themselves and, and basically have their own wor- style of worship and, and have their own, gods in all of that and god comes down and he looks at the whole thing and what does he do does he start biting his nails and say oh my goodness what is going on here i mean people are taking over and there's nothing no what does god do he comes down and he he just frustrates them changes their languages and so, all of a sudden, rather than, you know, how frustrating it would be if you, if you couldn't communicate on a construction site, you know, everybody's speaking a different language, everything comes to a screeching halt. That was before, you know, they had Google Translate. <laughs> you know, the whole project stopped. Man had plans, God's plans overruled. We have to remember that, church, that our God is on the throne. Psalm 2, 1 through 4. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? What are they plotting about? What are they raging about? Verse 2, the kings of the earth. Do I have it there? I was thinking I had that verse I could put up there before I don't. Uh, The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord. Right? So, what they're raging about is they're raging about God. They're they're frustrated with God. They're frustrated with the the fact that God is on the throne, and so they're conspiring against God. Isn't that just insanity? How do you you conspire against God? But that is the pride of the powerful. They think that they can overrule God. They say in verse 3, let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs it says the lord ridicules that isn't that's just such a scene you know we're down here on earth we're making our plans we're trying to overrule god and god is just up in heaven on his throne laughing like who do these people think that they are they conspire together they rage together they take their stand together but know this God in heaven is never perplexed or paralyzed by what people do on earth. We can be so frustrated with people. We can be so annoyed with people. And when, our, when we have plans or we believe that God has something for us to do, you know, uh, we can be so frustrated when it feels like our plans aren't moving along fast enough. And what we need to remember is that God is on the throne and that his plans overrule all the other plans. He's that big. Second reminder is this. God fights for us and is always triumphant over the enemy. This is from verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11. So armed with the command and, and promise of the Lord Joshua, he leads his men into into battle. And so they march 25 miles and they do it in the middle of the night. Eight to ten hours they march from Gilgal up to to Gibeon. It was a, a distance that previously had taken them three days. They hustle overnight and they they launch this surprise attack. And we can see that Joshua has learned some lessons from failed battles, from what had happened with Gibeon. He's becoming a a skilled and a and a courageous Leader And look what happens. This is verse 10 and 11. The battle rate wages, and as it does, it says in verse 10, and the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. And he defeated them in a great slaughter at Gibeon. He chased them through the ascent of beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah, and, and Makedah. As they fled before Israel, this is verse 11, the Lord threw large hailstones on them from the sky along the descent of Beth Haran all the way to Ezekiel, and they died. More of them died from the hail than the Israelites killed with the sword. You see what's going on here? Israel's fighting this battle, but it's the Lord who is doing the fighting. It tells us that the Lord defeated them. It tells us that the Lord chased them. It tells us that the Lord struck them down. Think about the, the excitement of realizing that God fights, that God is fighting for you. Do you ever stop and consider that? That God is fighting for you? Look, I know that we've all been decimated at times by the enemy, haven't we? We've we've all had our setbacks. We've all fallen on the battlefield a time or two. We've we've been wearied by circumstances and, and obligations and how wonderful it would be if God would have come to our rescue and took up our cause and defeated our enemies. And what we need to recognize tonight is that God does fight for his people and that if God were not on our side in the conflicts of life, we would have been overwhelmed a long time ago. I think one of the marvels of heaven is going to be getting to heaven and recognizing for the first time about what all the, how God had protected us, how God had provided for us, how God had won the battles for us, oftentimes without us ever recognizing that God was fighting for us. We're going to, I believe we're going to see all that one day. It's all going to be unfolded in front of our eyes. Man, what an amazing thing. God is fighting. He's fighting for his people. And the terrain here over which the soldiers are fleeing, it actually falls. I, I had some maps in there. I, I kind of skipped over them for sake of, uh, of time. But the terrain, as they're, as they're going down this ascent, it drops 700 feet in just two miles. I mean, it's really steep. And the Canaanites are fleeing and the the Israelites are chasing them down this hill. And I can imagine Joshua is standing there and he's taking it all in. And as they are running down this hill chasing them, the Bible tells us that God sends a hailstorm. A hailstorm. And that this hailstorm wipes out many of their soldiers. You know, hailstorms aren't to be taken lightly. Have, we, have you ever experienced a hailstorm here? Right, we've had them. We were up hiking uh, up at Whitehorse Lake, way up in Williams, I don't know, a couple years ago, and we got caught in the middle of a hailstorm. Hail but, you know, the hail is about that big around. How many of you ever had your car damaged here by a hailstorm, right? That happens, that happens here. On May 1st, 1888, t- did you know 250 people were killed in a hailstorm in, Indi- in India? 250 people. The largest hailstone recorded in America was 17 and a half inches in circumference. Can you imagine that? It weighed 1.67 pounds and it landed in Kansas in 1970. Go to the book of Revelation sometime, chapter 16, of verse 21, and the Bible talks about hailstones falling at the in the end times during the tribulation that will weigh over 100 pounds. You imagine 100 pound chunks of ice falling from the sky. Well, God sent this hailstorm and it tells us here that more of the enemy dies from the hail than from Israel's sword. Psalm 33, 16 through 20 says this, a king is not saved by a large army. A warrior will not be rescued by great strength. Boy, we need to let that sink in, don't we? You know, we're a superpower in the world today. We have to let that sink in and recognize the truth of that. The horse is a false hope for safety. Of course, the horse used to be the tank. Uh, of warfare right it provides no escape by its great power verse 18 but look the lord keeps his eye on those who fear him those who depend on his faithful love to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in famine we will wait for the lord he is our help and shield church listen god is big enough to be aware of you at all times God is big enough to know exactly what you are going through right now in your life. Maybe nobody else in the room has any idea what's going on between your ears tonight or the struggle that you're having tonight, but I want you to know something, that God in heaven is big enough to know exactly what you're dealing with. And I love the fact that the Scripture reminds us that God has his eye on on us. You have his attention You have his attention. You're under his tender watch care. He sees everything that happens to you. He sees your hurts. He sees your fears. He sees the valleys that you go through. He sees your sorrows. Nothing escapes the gaze of our big, big God. His eye is on your life, and he knows more about you and your needs and your battles than you do. So he's big enough to be completely aware of you, and he is big enough to rescue you from your battles. He's able to rescue you from your troubles. You see, our Heavenly Father, he loves you, and he is taking care of you, and he is your help, and he is your shield. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, this is 2 Corinthians 2.14, he wrote, now thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph in Christ. That word triumph there just doesn't mean mean just a, a victory, it's talking about a great victory, an important victory. You see, God desires to divinely position us to have great and important victories in our life and as a church, I believe that. He always causes us to triumph in Christ. You see, our God, our Lord, will never let us down. Not a single promise of God's word will ever fail. This is our lifelong heritage in Christ. It makes no difference what happens tomorrow. It makes no difference. What, what goes on in our life from this point on. It makes no difference what the adversary throws at us. God has made us triumphant. We need to know that, we need to believe that, understand that we are victors in Jesus Christ, that we have triumph all of the way. Paul writes to the Corinthians in in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, listen, whatever you're facing, you need to be reminded tonight, and I need to be reminded tonight, that our God is big enough to give us the victory in whatever we're dealing with in our lives. Whatever the battle is, be it sin in our life, be it some habit in our life, God is big enough. He, will, he can fight that battle for you and give you the victory. Well, that brings me to our third reminder. Here it is. God can do the incredible when we pray in faith. This comes from verses 12 through 15. Verses 12 through 15. Just picturing that sight of Joshua as they've crested that ridge and the armies are chasing down that ascent and the hailstorm is falling. Can you see the panic on the soldiers' faces as they're fleeing? And I think Joshua realizes there in, the mo- in that moment that he had an incredible opportunity to destroy this confederacy right then and right there. And he also realized that there wasn't enough daylight left to achieve total victory. And so Joshua prays a very unusual prayer. Here it is. This is verses 12 and 13. And on that day, the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israelites, and Joshua spoke to the Lord in the presence of Israel. Here's what he said. Sun stands still over Gibeon, and moon over the valley of Agilon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Isn't it written in the book of Jeshar? So the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed its setting almost a full day? What's going on here? Well, it tells us here that Joshua commands the sun and the moon to stand still. And the Hebrew word there means to be dumb or to be silent or to be still. Still. You want to get into the weeds? Just start reading what all the different voices out there, the scholars uh, from the very conservative side to the very liberal side, how they tried to determine what in the world happened on this day. There's a lot of different opinions. This is one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. This is one that critics and scoffers use to claim that this, the Bible is a hoax. This is one of those passages. Some of them believe this is folklore. Some of them call this a myth. But I have to tell you, I believe those people are mistaken. I personally, I believe the Bible's true. And I believe there's a lot of good reason for that. To back up that statement, I believe these stories are, are true, this isn't uh, poetic language, I don't believe that. I believe that God is revealing to us what happened on that day, but I tell you this, I don't know how God did it. All I know is that somehow God intervened on behalf of Joshua and his people, and somehow God prolonged the daylight almost a full day to give Joshua And Israel, enough daylight to finish the battle. It was an incredible miracle. Some people say, well, you know, this is so against science. I mean, why didn't Joshua, why didn't he talk to the earth? I mean, everybody knows it's the earth that revolves around the sun, you know, and he told the sun to stand Still, and you have to, I mean, there's a good explanation for that. I mean, Joshua's just using what they call observational language, right? If you've read in the almanac, right, you can look on your, you can look on your, your Apple phone. It will tell you exactly what time the sunrise is tomorrow and what time the sunset is tonight, right? You can find the exact moment that the sun is going to rise and set. Now, does the sun rise and set from our perspective From our observation, that's what it looks like, but we know that the earth is rotating and it's going right around the sun. And so it's actually the the earth that's moving, not the sun. We do understand, and I believe that science has has, uh, verified this, that the reason that the earth spins is because of the gravitational of the sun. And so what's going on here? I mean, to many, they, they just want to write this off because it's against all known laws. And simply what I would say tonight is that there's no such thing as the, law, as, as the laws of nature. Uh, hear me out on this. Just hear me out. I don't believe that there are such things as the laws of nature. I believe that there are the laws of God. I believe that, and you understand, to have a law, you have to have someone who has the authority and the power to create the law and enforce the law, right? And so let me ask you a question tonight. Is it possible that the God who created the universe started the whole thing up like a clock? I mean, you can actually spin back, scientists can actually spin back time and they can find when the moon was right over that valley and when the sun was right overhead, and they, can, they take it back, I think it's July 22nd that they, that they take it back to the date when that type of a scenario would be in that particular uh, place uh, in Palestine, right? But, but think about this. If God could create the universe and, and start this clock, and this clock works masterfully, and it's been working for thousands of years, right? If God could create all that and make all that happen, let me ask you a question. Could the same God who who made the laws that make all that work, could he rescind that law for a moment? Could he stop that law for a moment? Could he do it for two minutes? Could he do it for 24 hours? If we're talking about the God who spoke and said, let there be light, let me ask you a question. If, if there's a God, as the Bible says, and I believe, that there's a God who said, let there be light and there was light, that if that God is that powerful, that big to create the universe with his spoken word, then that same God is big enough to say, stop for a minute. Hold it right there. I don't know how he did it. You, you can go on the internet and you can read I mean, there have been uh, stories out there, you know, uh, books that have been written about this, and people who have, who have said that, that it's been, this has been verified in certain ways, but I, I don't know what to believe on it all. I do believe this, though, that God stopped time in some way, shape, or form. He stopped the sun from setting. It was at noonday for at least an entire day. And during that time, God's people won this battle. You see, God being God can do whatever he wants. Do you believe in a God that big? Psalm 74, 16, the day is yours, God, also the night. You established the moon and the sun, that just like blow your mind? I saw a picture of the South Pole the other day, the earth, you know, the bottom of the earth, and it just showed the bottom of the earth, you know. I think the earth is 6.66 trillion tons of gravel and water. You look at the earth sitting there in space, and it's just 6.66 trillion tons. Is, there's nothing... There's no Atlantis under there holding this thing up. God hung it there, God put us here. And a God who's big enough to do that is a God who's big enough to stop it for a little bit. Joshua didn't know that the Earth is 8,000 miles in diameter, he didn't know that. He had no idea that there were 200 million square miles of surface area and that 71% of Earth is water. Had no idea about that. He didn't know that earth is 93 million miles from the sun, and that at its core, uh, uh, the sun, 30 million degrees Fahrenheit. He didn't know any of that, but he knew God. And all he asked was that God would stop the sun and to help give them the victory. So here's what I want you to remember tonight. Your God and my God, he's big enough to do what he chooses to do. Our God can do what we cannot do. And yet, sometimes we try to play God, don't we? Man, we try to play God. You know, we try to control our circumstances. We, we try to map out life. We try to, man, we try our best to be a little G God and let Satan, you know, almost like push God off and say, hey, hey, can I try this for a while? This looks fun. I can do this. We do that, but we need to recognize, look, we're not good at being God. It's a good thing we're not God. I mean, if I were God, I would have done this to me a long time ago. You're done, Creighton. You're out of here. That's what I would have done with Dave. Our God is bigger, much bigger than us. He's much bigger than this planet we're on. He's much bigger than our solar system. He's much bigger than the Milky Way. He's much bigger than the universe. Our God can do what we can't and there's nothing too great for him. Church, I I hope that if you take anything out of here tonight that you remember that. And I know it's in our theology, I know it's what we believe, but I hope that we'll go out there and live like it. Live the truth that our God is bigger than we are, that he can do what we can't and that nothing is too great for him. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Jeremiah says, oh Lord God, you yourself made the heavens and the earth by your great power and with your outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you. God can rescind, he can amend, he can set aside any law, he can use a law that I don't even know about, he can do anything that he wants, so he can stop the earth from rotating if he wants to. I don't know if he did it by light and fractions. I don't know if he slowed the earth down on its, on its rotation. I don't know if he just took the entire universe from A to Z and slowed everything down. Who knows, who cares? All I know is that God did it. And that's it. God did it. About 12 years after he graduated from Princeton, a Donald Gray Barnhouse was invited to preach in a chapel there back when Princeton had chapels where preachers would come, right? And when he arrived, he noticed that his old Hebrew professor, Robert Wilson, had come down. He had taken his place on the front row down here to hear him. And when the service was over, Wilson went up to Barnhouse and he said this. The professor said to Barnhouse, he said, Hey, look, if you come back, I won't be back again because I only come once to hear my boys preach. He said, But I'm glad to hear that you're a big godder a big godder. He said, when my boys come back, I come to see whether or not they're big godders or little godders. And then I know what their ministry will be. Barnhouse was kind of wondering what he was talking about there. He wanted him to extrapolate a little bit. He said, would you explain this? And he said this. He said, well, some men have a little god and they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration of the scriptures and their preservation and transmission to us. They have a little God, and I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, and it's done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those who fear him. You have a great God, and your great God is gonna bless your ministry, Wilson said. Are you a big godder? or a little godder? Verse number 14 tells us the significance of this event. Look at what it says. It says, there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to a man because the Lord fought for Israel. Are you a big godder or a little godder? Well, it's gonna determine how you pray. If you've got a little God, you're going to pray, pray little prayers or not very much at all. But if you're a big Godder, if you have a God who you know has created all things, a God who can stop the earth on his axis if he needs to, then you'll believe what Jesus says when he gives all of these promises. If you remain in me, John 15, and my words will remain, remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. That was written long before Joshua ever spoke to the sun, stand still. Jesus says, until now, this is John 16, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. Jesus said in Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, what? Receives. And the one who seeks, what is the church? Finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be, what? Opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? That's not what God does. Or if he asks for a a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God hears and answers prayer. Are we praying like we're big Godders or are we praying like we're little godders? Jesus says this in Mark chapter 11. This is Jesus is telling us to pray like big godders. He says in Mark 11, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that uh, what he says will happen, it will be done for him. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Now listen, you have to take verses like that. You have to recognize that you can't isolate a verse like that from the rest of Scripture. You can't do that. I mean, you can really go off the rails theologically if you start believing that whatever you ask for, you're going to get. There's a lot of other Scripture that helps us to understand how to pray in the will of God and so forth. But I love what Wiersbe says about this. He says, whatever mountain you face, God still has the power to move mountains. Do you believe that? He does, church. What is your mountain? God has the power to move that mountain. So what do we do? We pray in the beginning. We pray first. Oswald Chambers said, we tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. When we are to pray, when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. So church, listen, pray at the beginning. Also, pray about everything. Deal Moody said something, some people think that God doesn't, Uh, like to be troubled with our constant coming and asking. And he said, the way to trouble God is not to come at all. So pray in the beginning, pray about everything, and then pray big. John Piper said, if we only pray for health and safety, we're missing out on something big. Think about your prayers. Just look at your prayer list. Just think about what you have prayed about over the last week and ask yourself a question. By my last week's prayer life, Am I a big a big godder or a little godder, just based on what my, what I prayed about last week? If all we do is pray for health and safety and for grandma's aching knee, we are missing out on something big. Pray about those things. Pray about those things. But let our prayers be big. I also they believe that we need to pray believing, right? Prayer is an act of faith. And so church, our God, can do incredible things when we pray. What do you need to pray about tonight to your big God? Here is number four that I need to remind you about, and then we'll be done. Number four is this. God can enable us to do whatever he calls us to do. I wish I had the time to read this entire chapter to you, and I don't. Go home and read it if you haven't already. But I'm going to tell you what happens from verses 16 to 43, okay? Okay. Here, here uh, Israel has, they've chased them down, they've defeated the enemy, and what happens is, is that the, uh, the, these five kings, six kings, they run and they hide in a cave. And the men of Israel, the army of Israel, hears about this and they send word to Joshua. And Joshua says, okay, take some big rocks, fill the mouth of the cave, seal them in there, and then go chase down all the bandits who got away, and, and then we'll, we'll regroup, and so that's what they did. They went out there, they made sure that they had gotten them all, and then they go back to the cave, and Joshua pulls them out of this cave, and he lays, puts them on the ground. This is something they would do back then, and he had all of his commanders, he had all of his commanders and his officers come up and put their foot, John, do you want to help me illustrate this for a minute? <laughs> I'm just kidding. He had, had them put their foot on the throat of these kings. And as he did that, he said, he said this. He said, don't be afraid. This is verse 25. Don't be afraid or discouraged. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord will do this to all your enemies. Joshua was a big godder. Joshua They fought some big battles and they beat down some big kings, and he knew it was all because God fought their battles. And he wanted his men to be courageous and strong in the battles that lay ahead of them. So from there, if you go to verse 28, it says, On that day, and then you read the rest of the chapter, they go to all of those six cities. One day, all of this has happened in one day. They go to six cities. And the map, bring the map up there. The six cities here, you can see them on the map here. And, and they go and they, they besiege the city, they attack the city, they defeat the city. There is no survivors. And what it says in verse 40, it says this. It, it gives a summary. It says, so Joshua conquered the whole region, the hill country, the Negev, the Judean foothills, and the slopes with all their kings leaving no survivors. He completely destroyed every living being as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. So as Joshua obeyed God's orders, God enabled them to win the battle. You see, Joshua isn't about how big Joshua is or how strong the army of Israel was. Joshua, the book of Joshua, is all about how big God is. God fought for Israel. God won the battle. I want to just close with this. If you go to verse number 14 for a minute, the sun stops. This is verse 14, and it says, there has been no day like it before or since. The day that the sun stood still, there had never been a day like it. God says there will never be another day like it. What does that mean? It means that the sun sets on cue every single night, right? Every single night, what does that mean? It means that if we're gonna think that our God is so big that we can sit around and do nothing while our God fights all of our battles, we're mistaken. We have to go out there and fight the battles and we have to fight our battles with the Lord's help and his strength, before the sun goes down. Because tomorrow, this day is only 24 hours. Jesus said this. He said, I must work the work of him who sent me while it is day. And he said, the night comes when no man can work. You see, church, what, what's, what's the point? The point is that, look, we only have so, so many days in this life. And if we live like little godders, if we pray shallow prayers, if we as a church, as we take the hill, if we have shallow plans and and shallow goals and we just think, oh, we'll see what God does and there's no no big plans, there's no big goals, there's no big prayers in any of that, we're the only ones who are going to suffer from that. What are we going to miss out on? And so my challenge to us tonight in our own personal lives to be big godders, to pray big prayers, to recognize who our God is, and as a church to do the same, and then to go out there and to do the work of the Lord. Paul wrote this to the Galatians, let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Can't give up. We can't give up. And he said this to the Corinthians Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor is not in vain. So, my question tonight is How big is your God? Is he big enough to overrule and defeat the schemes of the enemy? Is he? Is your God big enough for your problems? Is your God big enough for your future? Is he big enough for your pain? Is he big enough for your fears? Is he big enough for whatever you're facing? Is he big enough to do the incredible when you pray and ask in faith? Is he big enough to do whatever he calls you to do? Is he big enough to enable us as a church to take the hill? Is he he big enough to enable us to accomplish the mission that he has set before before us? I would say yes, yes. Yes, our God is big enough, but listen, if if your God isn't big enough, maybe then you need to trade your God in for the God of this book. Because the God of this book, he can do the impossible.